Hey there folks, welcome back to the channel. So this is one that I've been thinking about for a little while, and it's one of those things where I've constantly been trying to find the best way to present and also at the same time the right time at which to create the video. And part of the reason for it is that unlike a lot of the videos that I do where I talk about a little bit more abstract things or kind of think about things conceptually, usually I have a thesis that I want to have going into it and then I kind of talk my way through it. This is one where I've got my own opinion, but at the same time, I don't think it's valuable for me to then try to present it as an argument in favor of that opinion. It's more like I want to present the problem that is created and then kind of leave it to you to figure out what side of the fence you've fallen on and how you want to apply it. But as I go through it, you're going to see some of the problems behind it and part of the reason why it has been so difficult and it's not something that's easy to do. We all kind of uh, grapple and play around with the whole idea of demand because that's what's in the title. And the reason why I made it the problem of demand is the title is that it is a problem when trying to figure out what to make of the current market, what to make of the past market, and what to try to project towards the future. A lot of people have taken a stab at it. And uh, some videos recently that I saw, I won't single any out in particular, but they've taken their stab at it with a thesis in mind. And I find that problematic for the reasons that I'm going to outline in this video. So let's get straight into it and I'll kind of explain where I'm thinking about this. Now, when we're thinking about it, the easy answer every time there's a price, either high, low, or, you know, trending upward or trending downward, you can go back to the cliche, you know, supply and demand, supply and demand, supply and demand. And economically, that's true. That the supply and demand idea doesn't go away. It's constant. It stays uh, in position. And that's part of what, you know, makes things go up or down. Now, the problem is once you get past the cliche is you have to figure out how you're going to navigate the two things because they are always in motion, but there are some major differences. I'm focusing on the demand side because um, as a lot of people would allude to, supply is something that's discussed constantly. Now, here's the thing. Part of the reason supply is discussed constantly is because it's frankly easier to discuss. That's the biggest reason for it. And the reason it's easier to discuss is because with, depending on the item itself, there's a lot of ways that we can try to, even if we can't nail it down to the exact item, there are different ways we can try to extrapolate. There are different ways we can guesstimate. We can try to figure it out. And I'm going to give you an example just to outline it. I'll, I brought a couple of cards with me just to give an example. So I'm going to use, uh, you know, my, my favorite, uh, channel favorite, Juan Soto. But uh, I'll use the two side by side each other because they're a good example of exactly what I'm talking about. So I've got the 2018 Tops Update uh, flagship. This is the gold version. And then here I've got the rainbow foil version. Uh, so basically two parallels of the same card. And what happens is both of these are actually fairly more similar than they are different. Not only are they using the same picture, obviously the parallels of the same card, but they've got very similar similarities as far as insert ratio pack odds. Now, the gold one, uh, those that are familiar with it, that is numbered to 2018. Now, the important thing about that isn't the actual numbering, and it's not the grade on this card, and it's not the grade on this card. None of that is particularly important. The important thing is that the gold ones are not are inserted at a ratio of one in eleven hobby packs in 2018 tops update. Now the rainbow foil is actually very similar. This one is one in every 10 packs. So the difference between the two is actually closer than most people might think. Now the gold one is numbered. So here's what we know. We know that the rainbow foil is actually easier to pull than the gold, but not by that much. So the point is, you know there are 2018 of these. So how many are there of these? Even though we don't necessarily have it nailed down to the, to the very singular card, we can extrapolate we, we do a little calculation, we grab our calculator, we figure it out. We can make at least a reasonable guess and find a range that we're comfortable at. So we know that there's more of these than there are of these, but not so much more. It's not like twice as many. It's not a big dramatic figure. So you can find out basically between those insert pack ratios, you can get at least a ballpark figure. 
Again, you may not be right on the, you may not nail it right on the head, but you're going to get it pretty close, at least close enough that you have at least an understanding that the rainbow foil is more abundant, but not by that much. So that's why supply is usually a little bit easier to do. Even something that's more obscure, a little bit tougher, something like the T206 Honus Wagner, we can make an estimate based on what we know about uh, history and auction results and all that. We can try to guess to a certain degree how many are actually out there and how many may potentially come down the pipeline. Uh, there's always the possibility down the road that someone may find a horde of them, but every year that goes by, that likelihood becomes a little bit more remote. That doesn't mean it's gone forever. So it's still demand, uh, sorry, supply in this case is still, you know, fluid. There's still a little bit of room for movement, but the longer time goes by, the more comfortable we are that for the most part, we've nailed the supply side down pretty well. So those things particularly are the reason why the supply side is actually a lot easier to figure out. Even if you don't get it perfect, you can usually get it within a certain reasonable range and then you're good to go. You can proceed from there and then try to figure out the rest on your own. Demand is where it gets a lot more complicated. And there are a lot of reasons why that is. It's because there are a lot of different little moving parts. A lot of it is uh, demand is very, very dynamic. Whereas supply can be a little bit dynamic. You know, obviously somebody could go around. Um, if I ask somebody what the supply is of these gold ones, so we'll use the gold one since it is, uh, does have a stated print run. So if I ask you what the supply of the gold one is, you could say 2018, because that was for this year. That was a print run 2018. But maybe you're thinking about it from the perspective of graded. So maybe you go look up the pop report on PSA and maybe combine it with Beckett, maybe combine it with SGC and you say, oh, the print run, you know, the supply is actually this for the graded ones. But that's fluid because if somebody goes and submits a bunch of raw ones to get graded, well, then the number is going to go up. So it isn't a static number. It's a dynamic number. It changes. If somebody cracks out a bunch of these and all of a sudden there are less of them graded, again, it's a dynamic number, not a static number. So there is some room for change to happen, even within a stated print run, even if we stick with the idea that there's 2018 total out there, assuming nothing else has gone wrong, the rest of it in terms of graded, ungraded and all that, that those numbers can shift around. And what you consider the supply will depend on what you want to define it as. Those numbers are not wrong. It's just a matter of interpretation when I ask you the question. Now, if I move beyond this point to the demand side of things, it gets a lot more complicated because almost everything you're going to do from here on in is going to be guessing and extrapolation. And unfortunately, we don't have any clean calculations. We can't use pack insert odds in order to try to figure things out. We're completely guessing. And a lot of that became prevalent around the time that uh, things started to move up in the market in 2020. We started to see a big surgence in soccer cards. And now we're seeing some soccer and, of course, some Formula One. And obviously, some things have gone down. So there's always constant movement. But all the time, what we're arguing about a lot of the cases is, oh, what's the demand? Well, the problem is, unlike the supply, where we can pull out our calculators and try to figure it out, demand is not so clean. It's not so easy. Because I'll ask you the, the interpretation again. What is demand? So is it the pool of potential people that could be interested? You know, when they talk about soccer, they talk about Formula One, they talk about the international fan base, they talk about all these things, and that, and that has some validity. But the problem is, that's not going to solve your problem. Because even if you take, you know, a large pool of fans for a sport or a player, or whatever the case may be, or a team, that doesn't necessarily translate to someone who would want to buy the cards. So you start off with this gigantic pool of people, and we'll use the basketball example, we'll use Luka Doncic, you can say he's got millions of fans worldwide. That could be 100% true. That doesn't mean they're all going to want a card. That means they might be satisfied with a hat, or a poster, or a, you know, a Luka Doncic jersey. Or maybe they can't afford any of the above, and the last thing in the world they're even thinking about is cards. They're, oh, but what if you were a fan of the sport in general? Would you collect basketball cards? The answer is maybe, but not necessarily. 
you can be a fan of a sport and not collect the cards at all. Even if you're a card collector, you can be a fan of the sport and not collect the cards at all. So the question is, so what's the demand then? I can't really reliably use the amount of fans as, as a metric that does work. I can't even use the amount of fans who are card collectors as a metric because the relationship is not necessarily one-to-one. So what's the ratio? I don't know. And neither does anybody else. So anybody that alludes to that you know, potential fan base and points that out as the reason, well, that's not that great. Um, a lot of times this gets thrown out there whenever something is considered to be quote-unquote undervalued. It's underappreciated. Then the question I always pose is why is it underappreciated? Why is the demand lower than you think it is? Because if the demand was there, the price would be higher. Would it still be underappreciated then? That's always a kind of an open question. So based on that, I can't rely on the fan base and I can't necessarily rely on the card collecting public as a metric because there isn't necessarily a one-to-one relationship. We then get into the area of, of, you know, anecdotal evidence. You say, oh, but you know, I know this, you know, I know these people that have told me that they weren't interested in the hobby or they came back after all these years and they've gotten back into it and now they're excited about collecting and all this. I don't disbelieve you, but at the same time, that's great. I know a lot of other folks that have gotten priced out of it, that have moved out. And all of this is anecdotal, so it doesn't mean anything. I also know that there are various people, what I said earlier is that just because you're a fan of something, just because you collect cards, doesn't mean you collect cards of the thing you're necessarily the biggest fan of or the thing you watch the most. So I can't use television ratings and I can't use those things as metrics either because, uh, and I'm again, anecdotal. The sport that I watch probably the most hours of and the most games of full games is probably football. That's probably the thing out of the three major sports that I watch that I collect the least. Uh, the stuff that I collect the most on this channel is a lot of hockey. I barely watch hockey games. I, I've barely watched them in years. I'll watch a game here or there, but it's very rare. Uh, my favorite hockey player retired 10 years ago. So there's no connection between what I'm watching and what I'm paying attention to day to day and what I'm collecting. And the thing that I'm watching the most is this thing I'm not really collecting very much. Baseball falls somewhere in between. But out of the three sports, the one that I watch the most is the one I collect the least. And the one that I'm watching the least is the one I collect the most, mathematically, in terms of cards and uh, different types of collections. So how does that make any sense? Well, I'm not alone in that. Just because someone collects doesn't mean that they're watching, doesn't mean they're actively engaged, doesn't mean they're in fantasy pools, it doesn't mean any of the above. So you can't really use those metrics and say definitively, yes, this is how we gauge demand. Okay, how about sales? How about sales volume and sales dollar amount? That would seem like a reasonable approach. It seemed like a reasonable way to take about it. Here's the problem. We don't know how many. You have to go below the surface. So even if you're able to gather all the analytics data as far as sales and in series of sales volume, how many unique IDs are there? How many different folks are actually making these bids and buying these things? And that's assuming we're not even counting into taking into account price manipulation and people doing these. And also, what is, where's the volume skew? Is it a, a smaller group of people buying a large amount? Or is it kind of uh, distributed evenly? Uh, you know, spoiler, it's not distributed evenly. There is a little bit of a hierarchy there. Uh, it does get a little top heavy. That isn't to say that folks in the lower end of the spectrum aren't buying anything, but they may not be affecting the market nearly as much by dollar volume. Uh, they may be affecting it as far as number of transactions, but we're not necessarily reporting or paying attention to those transactions. I think a lot of transactions happen at much lower dollar volumes than a lot of people who are trying to figure this out are probably taking into account. And if that's true, that means the demand could exist and the volume could exist, but it's not really moving the needle as far as dollars and volume. It's not setting the record setting prices. The point with that is 
that if it does end up to be a little bit top heavy, it could be actually a relatively small amount of people that are moving the majority of the dollars. And if that's the case, then I can't really use the overall dollar volume to really give me much of a gauge on demand at all, except at the high end, of course. And beyond that, it becomes, you know, kind of a crapshoot. You're kind of guessing a little bit. And it gets more complicated from there because when we're trying to consider what the demand would be, really, price does matter. And that's part of the reason why I said that there are a lot of these, uh, when I watch some of these videos, the amount of things they cover, um, it ends up being a very simplistic analysis. And I don't think it's, and I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. I'm just saying that in a factual way that you, you almost fail to take into account all these other things that play into it. And you keep trying to find, you almost try to find excuses for why, oh, well, demand could, you know, could probably be higher. It could also probably be lower. Um, and the argument on both sides is not terribly compelling and it's not definitive. That's part of the reason I said earlier, I've got my own opinion, but I can't forward my thesis as the final answer on this because at the end of the day, um, the evidence we have is murky at best. And that's kind of the overarching point that I'm trying to make with this video is that even when we try to build the evidence, we can make a case for it, but it doesn't mean it's a particularly strong case, regardless of which side of the fence you fall on. So what I'm sharing with you here is a screenshot. And specifically what I want to focus your attention on is this is a the price elasticity of demand curve, okay? And specifically, what I want you to focus your attention on is the idea that, and it's a logical idea, it's straightforward, it's economics here, um, the amount of demand on something does get altered and changes depending on the price. So at a lower price point, more people would be engaged and possibly involved in wanting the thing, that your desire is not a factor here. It's simply a matter of, can you participate in it? So demand, in this case, is not about desire. It's about your ability to actually participate in the market. So as I go higher up in terms of price, there's a lower quantity demanded. What that really means is that if I go high enough in price, you can't afford it. And if you can't afford it, you're not part of the demand. And that makes sense. That makes logical sense. I lower the price, more people are in the potential pool. And that plays out all the time. It plays out in all kinds of different ways and all kinds of different factors, high end or low end, it doesn't matter. Now I wanna show you one more thing here. I'm gonna show you a little chart. I don't do too many price charts on this channel, but I'll do one quickly for you. So here's the 1986 Fear Michael Jordan, pretty famous card that has been uh, for sale, you know, since the boom hole all started. It's been a bear, it's been a, you know, a measure of kind of market health uh, for a lot of folks. But you know, the last one sold for $312,000, which is certainly a healthy amount. The population is 320, which is you know a reasonable amount. And here is the last two years. So we're going at the end of 2019, prior to the COVID run-up, and going through to the current day. So what you got to pay attention to here is that obviously you see that gigantic spike right in that middle there. That's right in the middle of late 2020, especially. So right about here. But the other thing you got to kind of bear in mind here is that if we go back to the early part of this, what we find is that, you know, at the end of 2019, you could have bought this card for about $37,000, $38,000. That's not an insignificant sum, but it's hard to argue that the amount of people who may be able to participate in a market at $38,000, while it's not everybody, and it's not a lot of people, to be honest, is probably higher than the amount of people that are willing to play a ball at $312,000. That is a big difference. That does make a massive difference in terms of what people can do and what they can't do. And I'm back to this right here. Negative price elasticity demand. Higher price, lower quantity demanded. So when I'm looking at demand, that's an extreme example, but I'm just trying to make a point here. When I'm looking at demand, it's not good enough to say these are how many people want this thing. That doesn't matter. That's actually completely irrelevant. The amount of people that want the thing, a lot of people can want a Ferrari, but if all you can afford is a 10-year-old Honda used Honda Civic, 
then you're not part of the demand for the Ferrari just because you want it. Desire is not playing into this. Your ability to buy into and participate in that market is relevant. So when I use the example earlier about the price point, somebody who might have been able to, you know, get some stuff together and swing a $36,000, $37,000 transaction, which is not a lot of people, basically gets completely blown out of the water at $312,000. they are not even in the conversation. They're not even able to look at it seriously. So what happens is, number one, they drop out of the demand for that. And number two, if they're sufficiently frustrated, they drop out of the demand for sports cards in that realm anyway. They find something else to spend their money on. And that, in turn, moves demand out of it. So demand is constantly shifting. It's always dynamic. All these little factors play into it. And kind of the bigger overarching point of this is that part of the reason the demand is so difficult, in addition to the factors I already outlined, is that one transaction can change demand in, in ways we can't completely predict. I use the example of this card, but let's use a simpler card. Let's use a Michael Jordan card out of 100, a hypothetical one, not even a real one, but a hypothetical one. So there are some people that are interested in it. And let's say there's some really aggressive bidders, let's say five or six of them. And a couple of them are really willing to go absolutely to the limit. So they go and they get into a bidding war. And then a couple, a couple of them all fight it all the way up to a new record price. One of them wins it, they're happy. Now in this scenario, let's keep it simple. In this scenario, they just wanted one, they're satisfied, now they've got their copy. The other person is dissatisfied, but they lost out in a bidding war, so be it. They're still very interested. So when the next one comes up for sale, they're going to be right there, right at the top of the line to, in order to bid. And a couple of the other ones who were underbidders are also interested, so they bid it up. And it gets pretty close to that same price or maybe even a new record price because they're really aggressive. They're really irritated. They missed out on the last one. They must have this one. Now, what happens at this point is a couple of things. I've removed two people from this market. There's still some others who are interested. But the price point they were willing to go to quickly starts going down from there because maybe a couple were willing to go at this crazy record price, but the other ones were only willing able to go to a, a sort of crazy price, but not crazy record price. So the amount that comes up starts to drop a little bit. So that's where you go from record highs to the next one selling for less to the next one potentially selling for less or less or less or less. But at the same time, maybe some of the folks that are much, much further down the 10th highest bidder starts to think, you know what? Maybe this isn't going to happen for me. Maybe I got to look at some alternatives. Maybe I got to look elsewhere. And that's where you can have a situation where all the data indicates that there is plenty of demand to drive this price up. But in reality, that demand was a lot thinner. And we had no way of knowing because we won't find out until we get in. You know, if there's 20 people that quote unquote want this thing, but enough of them get driven out. So you had two people that are satisfied, they're out of the market. But it turns out you discourage eight of them. So actually 10 people are out of the market, not two, but there's no way to know that. So I can't claim definitively that, okay, so that means that demand is actually really thin on this item. Therefore, the demand isn't as, good, isn't as big as you think it is, even though, the, even though you ended up with the record price because the market conditions did allow for that, given the circumstances. Every single transaction that happens changes that dynamics. And that's the reason why it's so complicated. Even thinking about the basics of it, I've covered a couple of different angles of it. And I haven't even touched, touched on fractional, at the high end fractional changes the dynamics too. Because if something isn't available in massive quantities and one of the fractional companies buys it and turns it into digital shares and NFTs and tokenizes it, well then, all of a sudden one's out of circulation. So remember when I said about the whole supply thing? Well, whenever you enter another thing into it, we change the supply side of the curve, we can mess around with the demand a little bit. Maybe it becomes unviable. And if you've got alternative options, 
Maybe you drop out of that market and go into a different one. Maybe you go into a different style of collectible entirely. Now, the idea is out there that alternative investments is going to make up the difference and is going to increase over time, that may very well be true. But the thing about alternative investments is it's, it isn't just sports cards. That opens it up to a variety of different alternative investments. That means the money can get shifted around in multiple directions. Well, the more directions it goes in, the less money is available for one. If we're focusing on the sports card side of the market, that isn't the only option then. If we're just going to focus on alternative investments, we can go in a bunch of different directions. We don't have to stick to sports cards. So I can't use fandom. I can't use raw sales data unless I go a couple of layers deep and it's going to be really hard to figure out how many real unique bidders there are or unique buyers there are in the market. I can't really use the, you know, the record sales. I can't really use the, you know, the underbidders and all that because I don't know if any of them get driven out of the market because of the high prices. We don't really know exactly how many people get driven out as that price starts going up. We, can, we don't know how many people are in it. And then, of course, there is the trump card in all of this. The ultimate thing that really makes demand almost impossible to properly determine. We don't know the reason why. We don't know why they want to be in the market. The people that want to talk about demand maybe being underserved is that, oh, well, we're creating all these new collectors. Maybe you are. Or maybe you're bringing in people who are seeing the new dollar signs and came in. Because that's basically what you had. Um, the idea that the pandemic suddenly gave people more time, therefore, they suddenly found a lust for collecting that didn't exist in the prior years before. It awakened the collector within them. That could very well be possible. But as the prices ran up, you could have also driven out some of the original collectors who were there in the first place. So as you raise the demand by bringing in new people, you drove some other ones out. Now, was it a one-to-one -one ratio? Did more people come in that came out? The more optimistic will say yes. The more pessimistic will say no. They say you drove out more collectors and you brought in more investors. And if the money isn't there and the dollars and the you know the prices don't recover, they're going to start getting moving themselves out of the position. They're, then all of a sudden you'll be left with the supply that you had before and a lot less people to compete for. Market forces always dictate, though, if the price falls far enough, then somebody's going to come in and bargain hunt. Now, is that going to be a person who was already there or is that going to be a new person? Again, I don't know. The bottom line that I'm trying to get at here is not because I'm trying to say that, okay, we're understating demand or we're overstating demand. The point is that you could make a solid argument for either, because I think a lot of those same people that are making videos talking about this are not even remotely scratching the surface of all the different questions that you almost have to ask. The fact that I spent the last 20 minutes talking about it and I, and I probably could spend another 40 talking about even other factors that I haven't even touched on tells you just how complicated demand is. The problem with demand is that it's complicated. The problem with demand is that it's almost impossible to calculate. And even after you calculate it, if somehow the hobby gods bestow upon you the perfect knowledge to be able to determine demand right now, you're one transaction away from being wrong because now it's changed. Every single transaction has the opportunity to change the curve. Because when somebody wins the thing that they really wanted and they only wanted one, now they're out of the market, the demand has changed and the price has changed. Maybe both have changed. And at what ratio they've changed, we have no idea. If you price everybody out of the market and nobody's left, then the demand's zero. That's an extreme, but it is possible. But at the same time, the people that wanted one already got one. So now whatever's left over, nobody technically wants because we didn't know the reason they wanted it. Did they want it because they absolutely wanted that copy of that specific card? Or was it a case of they just want an example and you know what, never mind, this other one's just as good. I'll go buy one of those. So the demand shifts from one area to another, one sector to another, one type of collectible to another. 
all these things are part of that complexity that doesn't get acknowledged enough. And I know why, because it's not exactly what people want to hear. They want to hear that either A, oh, absolutely, the demand is, you know, we're underserved. This, this, stuff, this stuff is underrated. It should, you know, people should love it way more. And then once they realize, once they realize, because they never realized this before, it's the same thing that happened with soccer. It's the same thing that happened with Formula One. Guys, this is international. These people who are watching this sport for years don't realize these cards exist, even though they've existed for years. They didn't realize that they could buy and spend this money that for some reason they didn't feel like spending before, but now they realize they should spend the money. They need to buy this thing. It's important for whatever reason that apparently it's important. And you know, this market, this player, all these things are underserved because people need to realize that this player exists, even though these people presumably knew the sport existed, they didn't rediscover the sport, but now they realize that, oh, well, I should have been a collector all along. Maybe that's true. And on an anecdotal range, you could probably make the argument. And I know that I'll hear some people, oh, you know what? The pandemic brought me back to the hobby and I'm here for life. Great. Fantastic. Awesome. Good to hear. But there's a lot of the folks who came in because they saw the dollar signs. And that's okay. I'm not going to judge you for that. But I'm also going to point out that that means you're not really tethered here. You know, you're not standing on a foundation of bedrock. You're standing on a foundation of quicksand. And if it shakes a little bit and you fall through, you're gone. And I think a lot of folks are trying very hard, even when they try to have these discussions, they try very hard to lean on the side of, well, are we underestimating demand though? Maybe. Or maybe the exact opposite of that. Maybe we're trying to come up with justifications for why the demand surely must either maintain or even grow. When these people realize this thing, you got to have it. No, you don't. As someone who's been here a long time, you don't have to have it. Even those of us who have been here a long time and do enjoy this stuff, we don't have to have it either. And the truth is, you have to do what makes sense for you. Um, and sometimes that means don't buy it. The demand folks won't like that. They definitely won't like that. And maybe the thing that's underrated, it's not underrated. Maybe it's properly rated. Maybe it's exactly where it should be because that's where the supply and demand have it today. You just didn't like the way the formula came out. So you decided to change the formula. You decided to recalculate it and recalculate it until you got the result you wanted. But that's just my opinion. You can kind of get the gist of where I think things fall based on this, uh, based on this video, but don't take my word for it. Just think about some of the things that I threw out there because really um, my goal is not to, sway, to, sway, is not to uh, shift you over to, this, to my side of the argument. You can totally disagree with me 100%, but I want you to make sure you at least considered some of the things that I included in this video as part of it. Are you calculating the demand right? Are you even thinking about it fully? Or did you give it a superficial glance over? Did you just sit there and look for excuses to increase the amount of demand while at the same time not considering all the other things that could have been shifting demand out the other way? Even as new people come in, you can also be driving some other people out. And unless you know the headcount of the folks coming in and the folks coming out, you're guessing, just like I'm guessing, just like everybody's guessing. That's the problem demand. Anyway, so that's a little bit more of a kind of rambling video. I used to do a lot more of those, but uh, I thought I would have a little fun with this one. Maybe I'm completely out to lunch. So if you want in the comments, feel free to let me know I'm an idiot and I have no idea what I'm talking about or that I'm talking tremendous sense. Uh, either way, regardless. Uh, if you like the video, like the video. Uh, if you're interested in videos like this, where occasionally we'll do a deep dive on some of this stuff, subscribe to the channel. It would be very appreciated. Otherwise, there'll be more videos coming up on the channel. Uh, live streams we do every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern time where we talk about this or anything else that's going on, any news or anything else happening. So that's it for me this time around. Thanks very much. We'll catch you in the next one.